Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical context here on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's first art radio station, bringing you shows by artists, musicians, writers, critics and others for the last two decades, and hopefully long into the future. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Brian Eno. I first met Brian in December 2017 at an event in which we both took part at Somerset House, where Brian is on the board and I was a resident at Somerset House Studios. The event was part of a series called Futures of Power, talking to artists and cultural producers about how their work has enabled them to engage with wider societal concerns, what we consider to be our power and responsibilities, and which tactics and strategies we employed in our attempts to provoke cultural or political change. It was organised by Superflux, a collective based at Somerset House, whose work looks critically at the intersections of technological, political and cultural power, and it was chaired by Superflux co-founder Anab Jain. On the panel were artist, activist and writer Liv Winter, uh, Jinan Yunus, who is the assistant politics editor at Gaudem magazine, which is written by women and non-binary people of colour, and she's also a human rights activist, as well as Brian and myself. On the night, I talked about how Sweet 212, which was then in its infancy, was conceived not just to fill an intellectual gap in the landscape of British arts broadcasting, which I felt, and still feel, to be largely incurious in its approach and unambitious in its scope, but also a political one. Unlike most UK arts coverage, we make little secret of our ideological position, and in one of our early episodes, we spoke about cultural democracy, talking about how left-leaning intellectuals such as Stuart Hall or Raymond Williams engage with the idea of culture and its institutions, and I wanted to extend that tradition into the present and beyond. I explained some of this to Brian on the night and he agreed to come on the show on the condition that we do not talk about the past, a condition I was happy to accept, and so today we're going to pick up on some of the themes discussed at that Futures of Power event, as well as some of Brian's recent activities. For regular listeners to Resonance 104.4 FM, Brian Eno should need little introduction. He's an English electronic musician, music theorist and record producer, well known for working with Roxy Music, David Bowie, Talking Heads, John Cale and many others. As a solo artist, he's perhaps best known as the father of ambient music. For those of you who want to hear more about Brian's work in that genre, and many others since the 1970s, you can find numerous documentaries on YouTube and elsewhere. For the moment, amongst Brian's back catalogue, things that I feel have been slightly overlooked, I'd like to highlight Brian's collaboration with the German group Harmonia and his soundtrack for the London Filmmakers Cooperative member Malcolm Le Grice's short film Berlin Horse in 1970. So, Brian, welcome to Suite 212. Hi, Juliet. Nice to see you. Now, it's nice to have you here. We've been, as I've just explained, we've been trying to get you on the show for for over a year, so it's good to have finally uh, found time in our our busy schedules. Um, I wanted to just start the programme by maybe bringing listeners in to some of the uh, some of the work you've been doing over the last decade. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, you've worked with uh, some younger kind of up-and-coming uh, artists like Anna Calvi and John Hopkins. Uh, you've released several records with Warp, uh, who, of course, you know, occupy a very important place within British electronic music. Um, so the two most recent ones, I think, are The Ship from 2016, and Reflection, which came out in 2017. Yeah. Um, and you also worked on Finding Shore with Tom Rogerson. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Recently. Um, the Ship was the, the record that I picked out of your recent output. I've seen you describe it as a record of songs that didn't rely on the normal underpinnings of rhythmic structure and chord progressions, but which allowed voices to exist in their own space and time, like events in a landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, the record is broken into four tracks that more or less flow into one 48-minute suite of music. Uh, and it's inspired by the story of the Titanic and humankind's balance between hubris and paranoia. Um, and what I immediately thought of is one of my favourite pieces of music, which is Sinking of the Titanic by Gavin Bryce. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then, of course, I looked this up and saw that you actually released that record uh, on your obscure label in 1975. So I wonder if we could maybe talk about the ship and finding this this bridge from the past to the present, and maybe talking about how um, some of the technology you use to make music has changed, and how you how you try and keep current. 
Yes, well, the ship is an interesting um, case to talk about in relation to that last point, the technology point, because it was conceived and, in fact, shown really as a, um, what I called a three-dimensional music. So it was originally commissioned by a Swedish um, electronic music organization who gave me a large old cinema to work in. And it turned out they had a lot of speakers and a lot of amps. So I, th I started thinking about the piece as a multidimensional piece. Um, and my f catchphrase for it at the time was music that you could walk around inside. So, so I wanted the idea of a piece of music that you didn't sit in front of a pair of speakers as you would a screen, but that, that, that was a sculpture, actually, that a sculpture that you walked around inside. And at this place, which is called Fulking in, in Stockholm, we um, set up, I think probably there were 50 or 60 loudspeakers involved, some of them high up on the ceiling, some of them close to the ground, some of them hidden inside things, um, some of them good quality speakers, many of them various strange kinds of speakers, like tiny little ones that crackled a little bit, or um, ones that are usually only used in public address systems and so on. So each speaker, the idea was that each speaker would have a character. And I was trying to get over this idea that we tend to assume that the speaker is a neutral transmitter. It's just something we never even think about. In fact, though, though probably for all of us, about 95% of our exposure to music is now via loudspeakers compared to the amount that we see as live music. We just, we just don't think about the fact that those, those things have a body and a character. So I started to think that I could use those characters. Um, I use a lot of voices in the piece called The Ship, and sometimes the voices come through tiny, tiny little speakers, an inch across, but they're very high up in the ceiling, so they don't sound like humans any longer. They have a sort of strange, detached, distant quality to them. Um, the main voice in the song called The Ship comes through an enormous subwoofer system, because I sing in that song, I sing a very low note, a low C, um, and I wanted that to sound inhumanly deep, and it does in performance. So, so anyway, originally the piece was very much conceived as a sonic sculpture, um, which happened to use voice as well. Um, putting voice into music is something, of course, that I've been doing for a long time, but I've always had a, a difficult and changing relationship with it. I started out writing songs. My first albums were song albums. Um, but then I kind of lost faith in this idea of myself as the central character in the in the work. I didn't really want to be the center of the work in that sense. I didn't want to be a narrator. So on the record, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, I wasn't. <laughs> I just, I used voices that I found elsewhere. Um, and since then, I've, whenever I have used voices, I've tried to put them into the music as an element that I would treat the same way as I treated any other element. Um, so not necessarily me. That isn't me speaking. Um, I'm not actually very interested in me in the sense of the narrator. I, I want to make a, a scene of some kind which happens to include a human being sometimes. Um, and I've forgotten the first part of your question now. Sorry. Well, I mean, we, we actually, I want to bring in uh, reflection as well. Mm, okay. Here. Um, something I'd like to talk a bit more about with the ship is how, um, you know, the, the immersive qualities that you've just been talking about as the sort of installation, how that translates to the recorded version, mm -hmm. because obviously a lot of people will listen to the, the, the recorded version at home and won't yep. have that sort of technology. But I'm also interested in what you did with Reflection. Again, it's a single piece of ambient music running for nearly an hour. Uh, but what really interests me here is the generative version that you made available as an app which plays infinitely and 
changes the music at different times of day and digital streaming versions that update on a seasonal basis. Mm. So maybe we could talk a bit about how you adapted your practice according to, um, you know, sort of contemporary um, mobile phone and internet technology. Yes. Well, as you may know, I've been interested for a long time in this field of music that I call generative music. Um, generative. The idea of generative music is that instead of completely designing and specifying and creating a piece in all its details and then saying, that's finished, now I'll release it, which is what you normally do with a record or any other kind of um, manufactured piece of music. Instead of doing that, I, I was trying to design systems that would produce music. And in, it's by their nature that they don't produce predictably the same music every time. So it's sort of the same kind of music, but it isn't exactly the same music. So the most trivial example of that, but it makes it kind of clear what it is, is wind chimes. If I build a set of wind chimes, in a sense I build a piece of music, but I don't exactly know how that piece of music is going to um, turn out. So if you think of that as the starting point of, of the idea of generative music, and then try to think of... Um, making a piece of music where a lot of the choices, not just when the pieces when the pieces of wood hit each other, but a lot of the options are somehow deferred into the future. Um, so I started making pieces like that. Well, music for airports, is, is, which was 1978, is really a generative piece. Well, in fact, so is discrete music, which was 1975. So I started playing with this idea of creating systems rather than creating finished pieces. And it wasn't an original idea, I have to say. You know, Steve Reich had been doing it. Terry Riley had been doing it. Um, John Cage did it. So, But it was an idea that had not really moved into the... or outside of the avant-garde experimental area at that point. Um, so anyway, I, I started making these things, but of course what went out on a record at the end was a recording of one of these systems doing its thing. And of course, that recording never changed. So if you listen to music for airports, you hear a, a brief section of an in, uh, uh, ostensibly infinite piece of music. When computers appeared, I suddenly realized I had the possibility of actually giving people the, the system rather than the a recording of the system. Um, the system is essentially software. So I started working with that idea in the early 90s using a, a quite, quite thorny system called Koan. It was quite difficult to use, but quite good. But then um, the breakthrough really came when I met Peter Chilvers, who's a programmer come composer, and Peter had had um, been listening to some of my work and working on his own, and his his skills as a programmer suddenly started to make a lot of sense. And we worked together first on a a game, a video game called Spore, um, which I think came out in two thousand and five. Um, and I was asked to do the soundtrack for Spore. Now I don't. What happens mostly with video games is that you do a lot of loops and they are actuated at various points in the game. We didn't really want to do that. And I had the idea of making each scene in the game have its own generative music player so that when you got to that scene, the kind of music that happened there was familiar but not identical. You weren't just hearing the same thing as you heard last time you got there. Um, so... I asked Peter, who by that time I'd met, if he would work with me on that. And we came up with a number of very clever systems of creating live electronic music. So after the experience of Spore, where we, we in fact invented a number of music generators that were quite successful, we then moved on to, well, this was about 2006 or something like that, it was just the time that iPads were appearing. 
Now, the iPad was a real breakthrough because it was a, a proper functioning computer that you could carry around. Um, so we thought this is a platform that the work we've been doing is really, really designed for that, actually. So we made Bloom, and it was a big success, and still is, actually. It's still doing well. Uh, and it was very much appreciated by some quite odd demographics. <laughs> for instance, a lot of people said that their children loved it. Maybe just explain a bit about what Bloom... Oh, yes. Like. Sorry. So Bloom uh, works by you touching the screen of your device, which was an iPad but can now be a phone as well. And when you touch the screen, a little bubble of sound appears. And wherever you touch the screen, you get a different pitch. And then something quite interesting happens because the things repeat. And they don't repeat precisely the same way. There are some variables in how they repeat. So the piece starts to compose itself in a not entirely predictable way, which is quite intriguing. Um, it's, it's a very gentle, quiet piece. Uh, it seems to work well for a lot of people. It's used in um, nurseries, it's used in old people's homes, it's used in hospitals, and people just use it for their own entertainment as well. I remember calling <laughs> an office not long ago, and I could hear in the background, as, as the person was answering the phone, I could hear Bloom, and I said, what's that music you've got playing there? And she said, oh, oh uh, that, they, they always play this here, it's nice, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm very interested to to talk more and think more about how you know some of the work you do. You know, filters as you, as you talked about um, the works of you know Steve Reich, Terry Riley, John Cage, etc. Maybe not moving so far beyond these kind of avant-garde music circles within which they were conceived. Um, you know, this this interplay between between taking ideas from from the avant-garde or postmodernist cultures and bringing them into more mainstream settings mm. and what you feel maybe are the the uses of that the possibilities of that yeah so this is a kind of interesting and quite contentious area because there are people who say oh well it's not the real thing as though being obscure is automatically a value i i'm not sure that it is I mean, the same thing happens with um, in science, where you get people who do fundamental research, and then you get people who write about it and make very popular books about it. Sometimes they're the same person, as you know, Richard Dawkins is a good example of somebody who does both. Um, but I don't see that there's any reason that one should demean the popularizers either. Um, there's nothing wrong with ideas being out there. In fact, it's a really good idea that they should be out there. So, so I think I, I'm sort of on the, hopefully, I'm on the Richard Dawkins cusp of somebody who's doing it and making it um, possible for people to hear as well. Well, I'm, I'm broadly inclined to agree. Uh, a lot of my writing on transgender issues has taken mostly North American theorists who were writing in the 90s and 2000s, mm -hmm. um, whose work was sort of largely confined to a circle of people who are in the know about them. Uh, and of course, I discovered them through doing a master's degree at the University of Sussex, which you know is the kind of place where you would find out about obscure mm -hmm. queer theory. Um, but you know, I've brought them into my more kind of mainstream journalism and, and the book I published a few years ago, precisely because actually as a teenager it would have been really useful for me to know about those ideas it would have been yeah. you know politically and personally very very helpful for me to know about them so um you know i also feel that you know if if an idea or a practice or a style you know makes that transition from more kind of underground or avant-garde circles into mainstream ones then i think that challenges the kind of underground and avant-garde to to change its game do something mm. different yeah, that's my I I can't see how there's any harm to it. The only thing that seems to annoy some people is that they no longer own the sort of secret knowledge of of an area. Um, 
my feeling has always been actually one one of the messages I would love to get to people as an artist is you could do it too. Um, you know that thing that people say, oh, my daughter could do that when they look at a painting. Um, I would like people to look at my work and say, you know what, I think I could do that. That that would actually be a strength of the work to me, that it encourages people to think not only that they could do it, but how they would do it. And whether, you know, I, I'd like to break down this barrier between the artist with capital letters and the audience as though, you know, what you have the active and the passive. I, I don't like the idea of there being a, that kind of division. Yeah, well, that's a nice... Um platform for us to to talk a bit further about you know these concepts of cultural democracy and how they're becoming manifest in contemporary politics um so you and i both supported jeremy corbyn as labor leader in 2015 um i think we probably both have plenty of frustrations with labor's policy platform most pressingly and most recently uh, for those who saw emily thornbury on the television yesterday around their policies on immigration and freedom of movement mm. i don't really want to relitigate those here because you know there are plenty of other places including our friends at navarra here on resonance who will talk about these things um but something i do want to pick up from um jeremy corbyn's general election campaign two years ago um was was his line about how there is a poet or a painter or a musician uh, in everyone, and the um, the speech he gave at the Tranmere Rovers Football Club, Prenton Park, um, in May that year, where he urged people to come together in that brilliant cultural tradition we have, working class communities that built football clubs, working class youngsters that play music, and a government that cares about sport, culture and the arts, and gives you the space to play and rehearse your music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something that is intriguing about um, some of the support that the Corbyn project has got is um, you know, a kind of combination in its support between very young people who've known nothing but neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. And when I say very young, I mean, I'm including myself in that, and I'm nearly 40. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, so, you know, young, young and youngish people um, who, who've known nothing but neoliberalism, particularly young people who've known nothing but austerity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then people who can remember a time before Thatcherism I think you know that generation has been very important to this this more left-wing Labour project um, so I wondered if there's a way into the the next section of the show that I want to talk about if you could maybe uh, offer some reflections on what neoliberalism has done to the music industry and how you've seen it change during the time you've been involved with it and what that means for access to people to not just sort of consume culture, go and see it, but also to get involved with it, to make it? Mm -hmm. Well, I should probably reiterate something about my own background here, which is that I went to art school free. (laughs) I didn't pay to go to art school, as as did nobody else at that time. Um, And I discovered in art school that actually music was really what, what I wanted to be doing. Um, not exclusively, but that was that was the direction I felt. And because of the way art schools were at that time, which is to say they were quite liberal and not at all doctrinaire about what their students should end up doing. Um, and there were no league tables. So if you came out of art school as a puppet theatrist or a, or a nurse or... <laughs> or whatever else, nobody felt that was a failure of the college. They do now. Um, Anyway, I left art school with um, a degree in fine arts, um, and then I joined a band. But I was supported by the state for probably about a year and a half, and that was absolutely crucial to me. Um, It was the time in which I found out what I wanted to do and developed a lot of the ideas so that when the opportunity came along, the opportunity being this new band, Roxy Music, that I joined, um, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I was, I was ready for it, you know. Now, I think for a working class lad, as I was, <clears throat> those two kinds of support, not to mention a national health service that saved my life twice <laughs> by that point, um, but those two kinds of support of 
going to school free and then having a period of time in which I could find my feet um, in, I'm sure the Daily Mail would have described me as scrounging off the system or something, whatever they would say. Um, well, it's, it's what gave me the chance to do something. And so my feeling then was that social mobility was really very, very much eased by the fact that there was such a thing as the dole, national insurance, national assistance, I should say, and uh, you didn't pay to go to college. Both of those things have changed now. Um, and that has really changed who goes into music. Now, it's not bad that there are middle-class boys in most of the bands now. It's not bad at all. It's good that there are some that they are also represented. But what is bad is that it's so much harder now for working-class boys to do that. Yeah, and I see that not just in music, but particularly in uh, in comedy, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the class composition of, of comedy as a, um, a cultural circle, I think, has really gentrified. Um, literature, maybe, was always quite a middle-class mm-hmm. Uh, profession but again you know what the point you make about um the dole about unemployment benefit you know was often seen you know right up until the 80s and 90s as a, in some ways an unofficial state subsidy for for culture and of yeah. course there were things like the enterprise allowance which which allowed people um you know some some time to get creative ventures together i have some experience of signing on in the last six or seven years mm-hmm. i've been on unemployment benefit several times during that period uh, and what I've always been really struck by is is the kind of punitive nature yeah. um, of benefit culture now and the, the the way you're supposed to treat it like a job in itself. And, you know, I, I think it is partly of a, a cultural, political climate generated by, um, you know, the, the right and the radical right, mm. uh, you know, a real kind of resentment yeah. of... Hostile environment. Yeah, it's a hostile environment yeah. for... For, for cultural producers as much as for, for immigrants, but also, you know, I feel it's a conscious strategy to to rid us of all these sort of, you know, troublesome artists and writers and critics of government policy. Um, there's a great interview with Alexis Sale um, from a few years ago where he talks about how the left makes the same mistakes over and over again. The right only makes the same mistakes once. Um, I mean, looking at the Tory party and the EU, I think that's maybe generous to the right, but um, I think it certainly is true that um, people on the political right looked at this kind of flowering of cultural democracy in the sort of 60s through to yeah. the 90s maybe and said, right, we re-engineer society to make sure that doesn't happen again. Absolutely. Well, you know, there is this now, this phrase that's used in economic circles a lot, the golden age of capitalism, and it refers to the period from the end of the war to to Thatcher, really, um, Thatcher and Reagan. And what it specifically means is the end of an idea about cooperation and about society. Remember that Thatcher is the person who said there's no such thing as society. And Anne Rand, who was, of course, the sort of poisonous ghost behind a lot of neoliberal theory, um, was the person who said altruism is evil. Now, take those two statements together. What kind of society does that mean you end up with? Um, it means you end up with a lot of people who feel they are pitted against each other, who feel that they're in competition with each other. And it ends up with this this absurd idea of the self-made man, you know, I did it all myself, you know. So it ends up with companies like Apple relocating an island because people are educated there and they can set up their European headquarters and find good staff, but never paying any of the taxes that would support the education system that produce those people. So this sort of incredible selfishness that has really come to dominate um, politics and social thinking, actually, since um, the early 80s, really, uh, is, is actually a huge problem. And the second part of that problem is that we've all swallowed it. The, you know, my, my um, middle daughter works in the National Health Service. You can imagine what that's like. I've worked in the NHS quite oh, yeah. extensively. So. Okay, yeah. Well, she's she's always telling me about these ridiculous um, systems that they invent. You see, the assumption is that the only thing that works 
to change society is market mechanism, which in the NHS translates to money. So she was working in a casualty department um, recently, and they had, as they do in the whole of the health service, a, a fine of £2,000 if a patient breaches. That's to say, if the patient is not treated for in less than four hours in uh, coming in at casualty or something like that. Now, of course, the places are understaffed, and some nights there are a lot of people coming in. She said some nights there would be 10 breaches. That means the hospital is found fined £20,000. For £20,000, you could hire all the doctors you needed to deal with the problem, you know. Yeah, I mean, my, my last job at the NHS, actually, five years ago, um, was, was a kind of project support role through a temporary agency. It was a very kind of precarious job, and it didn't last very long. Uh, but my job was to... Um, well, the main part, the main plank of my job was uh, a weekly kind of round of just how many staff we had in this particular NHS trust, which, of course, even over the course of those six months in sort of 2013-14 um, became more and more pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I want to just bring in a quote from, from someone here who I think was incredibly good at diagnosing the effect of neoliberalism on British society and particularly on British culture, and that was um, Mark Fisher. Um, of course, sadly, is is no longer with us. But um, you know, I recently read the big K-punk volume that Repeater Books have brought out with a view to to doing a show on Mark um, quite soon. Uh, but this is from a, uh, a K-punk post uh, called Precarity and Paternalism, which was published in February 2010, and it's responding in part to um, you know programs like the X Factor and things that you know take this this competitive impulse and pit people against each other. Uh, Mark wrote, It's worth reminding ourselves of the peculiar logic that neoliberalism has successfully imposed. Treating people as if they're intelligent is, we have been led to believe, elitist, whereas treating them as if they're stupid is democratic. It should go without saying that this assault on cultural elitism has gone alongside the aggressive restoration of a material elite. Um, And I wondered if there's anything you'd like to to reflect on that, that. I've been writing a lot about this recently myself. Um, Now, what I wonder, a a kind of interesting question, is how much of what's called the golden age of capitalism really came as a response to the so-called threat of Russia. Here was Russia um, with equal rights for women in a way that we never had, with workers' rights in a way that we never had, with free education, free health care, you know, I know there were plenty of things wrong with Russia. I think that's fair. <laughs> um, but I think that the ruling classes here thought after the war, we've got to give them something. You know, the, comp- the competition is showing that you can run a society with um, uh, workers' rights and with um, women having a proper role in it and so on. Well, yeah, I think there's an important domestic context there as well, which is the fact that you had a generation who remembered the people who came back from World War One mm-hmm. and weren't really rewarded for their, you know, considerable sacrifices. But also the um, the British soldiers who'd come back from various parts of the world in 1945, who'd more or less organised themselves into Soviets. They'd yes. organised themselves into basically workers' councils. And so there was this whole basis of a labour movement that continued to exist for maybe the following 30 years or so until until Thatcher uh, and her successors, you know, quite deliberately took it apart. Yes, well, I I think there was a really an effort to say we can make we can take the best of the Soviet experience, the best parts of it, mix them in with what we do, and we can make a better world from that. Um, And I think that that stayed in place for the following 40 or 35 years, Um, and. I'm one of the beneficiaries of it. You know, it's not called the golden age of capitalism for nothing. It was a golden age in some sense. I now realize in retrospect how golden it was. But the other interesting thing about that name, the golden age of capitalism, is that it wasn't really capitalism. Um, it was some sort of socialist version of capitalism in the same way that Sweden has a socialist version of capitalism. So it should have really been called something else, the, the golden age of nearly capitalism. Um, 
it wasn't until Thatcher and Reagan came along that we really got capitalism in its, in its sort of raw form. And of course, the first thing that required in order for the Hayekian experiment to be fully intact was to get rid of all of those forms of communal activity, to get rid of um, trade unions, to get rid of the health service, to get rid of anything which um, expected people to support each other, to help each other, um, as being regressive and part of the this old pinko world of um, you know cheap communism. Um, and they did, and they still are. You know, I went to a meeting at the House of Commons last week um, about the what really will be the final blows to the NHS as huge chunks of it are now being sold off to an American company called General Health and to Virgin and so on and so on. Um, it'll be gone soon. There won't be anything left except the name. Yeah, I mean, that was that was my feeling uh, at the beginning of the coalition period. I was working for the uh, Primary Care Trust in Brighton and Hove, um, you know, sort of doing my writing around this, this full-time full-time job and so when Andrew Lansley introduced the health and social care bill it was quite obvious that the intent was to like you say open the NHS up to private competition but without you know taking this this step of just abolishing the NHS in one fell swoop because yeah. you know um, as Tony Benn used to say you know if you do that there'll be riots but um, this is a much more kind of feels to me like a much more like you say stealth backdoor privatization of the service and that was something else i used to see mark fisher talk about was mm-hmm. um was um a way these sort of these sort of soft coups conducted by the right function partly by um by making everything incredibly boring and technocratic <laughs> you know if the conservative party had come out and said we're abolishing the nhs you pay for healthcare now uh people would be out on the streets mm-hmm. if the conservative party say we're restructuring the nhs to put gps in control of commissioning Yes, you know everything is is done through this incredibly arcane um, process. Um, you know, people are kind of baffled and particularly bored into not engaging with it. Yeah. Really. Well, um, what privatization has come to mean actually is um, companies creaming off the valuable valuable parts of an organisation and leaving the public to pay for the difficult parts. I mean, the the most astonishing case of this is in America, the privatization of prisons, um, where it's part of the deal that the um, companies that run these private prisons don't have to take um, patients with mental problems, uh, prisoners with mental problems. And of course, that's a lot of prisoners. Um, In fact, you can classify anyone who's a difficult prisoner as having a mental problem. So they get thrown back onto the state so that means that the state is dealing with more and more difficult cases, which means that the burden, financial burden on them is bigger and bigger, which accelerates the appetite for privatized prisons. Why should we pay for this? You know, let some company do it. So you get exactly the same thing in the NHS here, where still most of the complex surgery and so on is done by the NHS and paid for by the NHS. The privatizers take the easy cases. That's where the money is. Absolutely. Um, let's bring the conversation back. Sorry, yeah, we're to, supposed uh, to be talking about, <laughs> <laughs> talking bring, about art. Bring the conversation back round to um, you know this this concept I talked about at the top of the show, which is the acquiring of cultural power or cultural capital mm-hmm. uh, responsibility. Um, I mean, I want to just give a for listeners a quick list of some of the political causes with which you've become involved um, to some level or other. Um, so this includes the boycott divest sanctions movement, uh, the cultural boycott of Israel in the wake of the, in the face of the ongoing occupation um, of Palestine and other territories. Uh, you're involved with um, DM25, that's a democracy in Europe movement, 25, um, along with uh, some people like Noam Chomsky and uh, Yanis Varoufakis, um, but also some other kind of less heralded names who, you know, do a lot of uh, important activist work. Um, you're also involved with the uh, the Long Now Foundation 
and you're a patron of um, Videre, uh, Videre Esquidere, to see is to believe, which gives local activists the equipment, training and support needed to safely capture compelling video evidence of human rights violations, um, which I think is a really interesting project. I think it has some parallels with uh, forensic architecture, mm -hmm. Isle Weissman's project, documenting, um, again, through through capturing footage and analysing it, um, documenting uh, some of Israel's behaviour in the occupied territories. We had Avi Mugrabi on the show um, beginning of this series last year. Uh, so I maybe would recommend listeners um, go back to our show with Avi for more on forensic architecture and, and the filmmaking in the occupied territories. Uh, but I wanted to bring in, bring in some of those projects and maybe we could talk a little bit about the... Um, the ideas behind the Long Now Foundation in particular and, and why you chose that name and what it is, why you got involved. So the Long Now Foundation started in the mid-90s. It was a group of, of us. Uh, all the others are Americans, actually. I was the only um, Gentile, <laughs> the only non-American. Um, and most of the people involved are sort of from the Silicon Valley background, you might say. Um, notably Stuart Brand, who was the kind of arch-environmentalist, started the whole Earth catalogue and so on. So he's sort of a legendary character. Um, so the name Long Now really came from a, a particular incident in my life. I had been invited to a party in downtown Manhattan um, this was in the late 70s when downtown Manhattan was a rougher area. And I was very surprised by the neighborhood. It was a really broken, quite dangerous neighborhood that this person had their apparently very expensive place in. Um, and in fact, it was very expensive. The, the, the apartment was an old warehouse and it had been turned into this magical place and I, I said to her at some point, um, don't you find it a bit strange living here, meaning in this part of town? And she said, talking about her apartment, no, I love it. Look, it's wonderful. And I realized that for her, here ended where she locked her doors. That was the here that she lived in. And I thought then, hmm, I don't really like to live in such a small here. I like to be in a neighborhood. I like to be somewhere where there are other people around. And then in conversation with my friends in New York, I realized that when they said now, they tended to have a similarly abbreviated sense of what now meant. Now meant to the end of the week, the end of the month or something like that. It didn't mean this time we are all living in. It meant this week I'm working my way through. <laughs> um, so I came up with... This, these two terms, the big here and the long now. <clears throat> and I thought, I want to live in the big here and the long now. Um, and that, that idea of the long now came from a sense of, first of all, where I am is the result of things that go back hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, cultural things, social things, technological things, um, things that were not even in my life, but long before that. And my actions, whatever I do, will have an effect that resonates down through a long time into the future. Um, this isn't arrogance. <laughs> it's true for all of us. Everything we do is changing the future. You know, environmentalism has made this more clear that we, the choices we make about how we live and what we use and what we discard will affect the future for a long time. So anyway, there were a group of us talking about this idea of how do we get people to think about the future in that sense? To How do we get companies to start thinking beyond the next quarterly um, report? How do we get people to think um, beyond their own lifetimes? As people apparently used to think, you know, you used to plant an olive grove for your grandchildren, not for yourself. Um, so we started this notion of uh, let's embark on a very, very long-term project. So we embarked on a 10,000-year project. Um, 
anyone wants to find out about that, just look at longnow.org. Yeah, we will tweet out the link um, after the show along with uh, lots of um, everything else we've talked about, as we usually do. Um, I'm your host, Juliet Jakes. I'm here on Resonance 104.4 FM for Suite 212, talking to Brian Eno about cultural capital, power and responsibility. Um, We've got just over 15 minutes left. Um, so what better time to launch into an absolutely massive topic? <laughs> um, uh, you know, I really want to to pick up, and this picks up on what you've just been saying about the Long Now Foundation. Um, you know, I'm I'm very interested, and you know, actually quite pleased to hear you talk about you know this concept of of having responsibility, of being aware that you have some power and that your actions have uh, some influence. Um, you know, listeners will know that I've had a lot of involvement with uh, mainstream journalism and have a lot less involvement with mainstream journalism now. I'm I'm involved with the, the Media Reform Coalition now. If you go on the Suite 212 SoundCloud, you can find one of the panels we did about podcasting and alternatives to mainstream media. And one of the things about uh, mainstream media culture that, um, that I find most frustrating and most kind of objectionable, really, is this sort of strategic denial of power and responsibility. Mm. We saw a very um, stark and sad and frustrating and infuriating example of that recently um, in the wake of the uh, the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand, um, where a lot of people who've long had frustrations with the British media for platforming uh, racists and far-right, for platforming sort of consistently um, anti-Muslim voices, you know, people are very happy to take credit for important journalistic work when it seems to achieve some sort of positive political end, but are very, very quick to uh, disavow any responsibility for the things they publish. Um, and, you know, people have been talking about this for years, you know, after the uh, the Utoya massacre in 2011, uh, and as Breivik's manifesto quoted several prominent British journalists and cultural figures as, you know, this huge document that he made. Um, but you know, quoted several British cultural figures as people who'd been influences on his thinking, and quoted them approvingly. Um, so you know, I think if you are working, you know, if you are putting work out into the public, you do uh, acquire, you know, some sort of cultural power. Um, you know, Sweet Two One Two is something that tries to think about that positively and think, okay, you know, we are making a targeted intervention into the politics of culture and cultural politics here. Um, and, you know, I think in, in Britain, something we talked about at Futures of Power is that it's seen as a bit of a crime to rise above your station. So yeah. that means that artists end up trying to downplay their own influence yeah. in a way that I think can be sort of dangerous, disingenuous, sort of counterproductive. Um, and, you know, people have responsibility to take part in these cultural conversations, I think. And I wondered, you know, a lot of um, artists who maybe had reached the stage of the career that you've reached would be tempted to just sort of step back and say, well, I've done my bit. I'm not going to engage in in these sorts of conversations anymore. So I wondered, you know, if we could maybe talk for the sort of 10 to 15 minutes we've got left about how you, you know, at this point in your life, at this point in your career, um, an artist of your standing, uh, how you conceive of this responsibility to be involved with politics and to politicise your work. Okay. Well, the first thing I should say is that um, a lot of very good artists don't get involved in anything political. So it, it isn't um, kind of necessary that that should happen. I, I There are quite a few, like Matisse, for example. Matisse spent the whole of the Second World War sitting at home painting and doing lovely pictures and refused to take any position, apparently, on uh, what was going on. Um, I don't have that nature unfortunately I would sometimes would wish that I did <laughs> but, but I get angry about things and and also I see things that seem to me amenable to change with a small amount of leverage that that's the thing I think I've I know I've got a small amount of leverage but to not use it seems to me ridiculous I just don't understand that personally um I think everybody should understand that they have a small amount of leverage. Of course, it, some people have more than others, but um, the point about leverage is that it's where you apply it that matters. It's where you choose to make the difference. One of the um, organizations you didn't mention that 
I'm involved with is called Client Earth, um, which is an environmental NGO, which is a group of lawyers, mostly young people who, instead of going into commercial law or any of those other lucrative things, decided to go into environmental law. And their commitment is to try to make governments, first of all, pay attention to environmental law, to help them draft it, and to make sure that they enforce it. That's always the difficult part. People often sign up to things um, like all of, all of the wonderful EU legislation about the environment. Many of the countries that are signed up to it don't actually um, do anything about it. Now, client earth takes them to court so that they have to do something about it. Um, when I was looking around at various organizations, client earth really stood out as one where you have huge leverage if you can make a difference at that level, it makes a long-term difference. So, so I think you have to pick your battles in that sense. To me, it isn't, it isn't really worth time piling into things when, when they've already become catastrophes. That's always very the most expensive end of the problem to deal with. So much easier to try to find out how do cat catastrophes happen, how can we stop them happening, where do we have to intervene? So that's sort of been my my guiding rule for choices like of, of that kind. Um, as for how thinly one spreads oneself, that's of course a problem for me. <laughs> I'm I'm spread quite thinly, and the thing I like doing most is still sitting in this room making music. Um, so I I. I'm more and more thinking now that the music should shall become my hobby for the next few years of my life. I, I woke up the other morning thinking, I've probably got 10 years left of life. I might have more, you know, luck would be great if I do, but I think I can count on 10 years. So what do I want to do in 10 years? If you think about it like that, it's quite stark, <laughs> you know. A friend of mine, um, one of the people in the Long Now Foundation, has a backwards calendar. I suggested it to him years ago, and he actually made one. Um, I said to him, Kevin, have you ever figured out probably how long you have left to live in days? He said, I've never done that. And he did it. And uh, I did it as well, actually. And I thought, well, how many books could I read in that time? What could I do in that remaining time? And it sounds a bit fatalistic, but I thought I could probably read 800 books. Um, well, there's probably 600 that I've read in the past that I would like to read again. <laughs> That's finished. <laughs> um, but, but I'm trying to sort of be a little bit more purposeful about this whole area of um, what responsibility do I have for things. You know, we had the luxury for quite a long time of thinking, oh, politics is a kind of messy business, you know, just leave that to... The important things are technology. Those are the important changes. That was very much the ethos, and still is, of Silicon Valley, that it's technology that changes the world, and politics follows a long time afterwards in its wake. But I think you cannot now do technology without a political position. You know, it turns out that everything we do has huge political ramifications. Facebook is not just a social media platform. It's, it's a statement about how people relate to each other. It's a, it's a whole set of... Um, it, it tilts the playing field, inevitably. And you either say, okay, that's what happens, or you say, let's, let's look at that. Let's think about how much we want to be tilted in that direction. So we've got five minutes left uh, here on Suite 212. Um, I find it interesting that you bring up, you know, these digital networks. You know, undoubtedly they are changing the ways that we relate to each other and the way that we relate to politics, the way that we do politics and what politics becomes possible. Um, you know, I'm thinking of um, like Paolo Gabbardo's recent work on the digital party and, um, you know, how the rise of, I mean, I think even someone like Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party, but also uh, groups like Podemos in Spain, you know, owe something to the types of organisation that become possible uh, digitally. 
um, when we spoke at Futures of Power, I think you were relatively pessimistic about some of these platforms. Um, and certainly I would agree that their ownership models um, and their oversight processes need you know, substantive reform. But do you see any... Um, do you see any positive um, possibilities in these platforms, either for the distribution of culture, because of course they're often, well, the internet in general is often kind of blamed for a collapse of the cultural industry. Do you see any possibilities in them either for the distribution of culture or for a kind of positive uh, reconfiguration of, of power relations? Well, my my own opinion is that music in England is is an absolute high point at the moment. There's so much amazing music around, and that's partly because there are so few bottlenecks to it. You know, it used to be in the past, certainly in the 60s, when I was first really listening to music carefully, um, everything depended on somebody sitting behind a desk in a record company or in a radio station um, as to whether it would be heard or not. So there's, there's a fantastic sort of tropics of music going on at the moment, huge amount of innovation and actually redigestion. It's as if the whole of popular music history is available to people and they're trying different collages and mi mixtures of it. So all that is wonderful. Um, and I, I find that this is happening with in lots, lots of other ways. I read a magazine, an online magazine called Hyperallergic, which is a sort of art magazine. Very, very, very good. It comes to me free, extraordinarily. I don't pay anything for it. It's, it's, it's the most interesting magazine about visual art at the moment to me. Um, I don't suspect it would ever have existed a few years back. It wouldn't have had a, probably had a big enough audience or something. Um, but now it's there. And, and I subscribe to a, quite a lot of news services as well, which are quite specific. They cover particular areas. Um, Novara is one of them, funnily enough. Um, and I think all of that is very positive. The idea that you could, if you put a little bit of effort into it, get very good news services. However, the, the problem is, though, that built into the very center of all social media is, is a kind of um, algorithmic response that is almost certain to lead you into the worst possible areas. Um, since it's all based on the most immediate emotional response, um, that, that's what the algorithms work on. You know, what do you respond to most quickly and which what thing do you send to other people most quickly? It's always upsetting things or cute things like cats. <laughs> so, so you end up with a kind of a whole bunch of people who are poised halfway between sentimentality and rage. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's sort of what uh, I th think the whole Brexit thing was. It's, half, it's halfway between sentimentality and rage. I mean, there's certainly a huge, um, a huge element of that. Uh, unfortunately, we've only got a couple of minutes left, so I don't think we can do Brexit. No, 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 no. Don't, oh, no, please. Don't, don't. No, I'm sorry I even that. mentioned it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, if you want to know more about Brexit, check maybe one of uh, one of the news channels or one of the alternative uh, media sites. I'm sure you can find something something on the subject. Um, I mean, okay, just to maybe we can just close the show on a positive note. Um, I'm really interested in in what you've just said about how how optimistic you feel about the music scene at the moment. Um, is there anyone who you'd maybe like to recommend to listeners? Um, anyone who deserves more attention? Oh, I just heard the other day the most beautiful song by a Danish group called Lowly, L-O-W-L-Y. And the song is called, I think it's called Blagain. That might not be correct. I might have to give you the proper details of that after this show. Um, it's just a wonderful piece of work because it's, it's so of this moment. It's somebody who's obviously listened to Arabic singing to, you know, voodoo, cowboy junkie music, to all sorts of different things I can hear in there. And yet, altogether, it's something completely fresh and new. It's a wonderful song. Um, so, apart from Lowly, I can mention 
few other things as well. But but um, I, I'm generally listening always with a pencil beside me because I keep hearing things from bands I've never heard of and I may never hear of again. So I write down their names. <laughs> well, great. That feels like a nice place to... Um to leave this on an optimistic note we will of course uh, tweet out the lowly song along with uh, everything else we've talked about so i've been your host juliet jakes um thank you so much to you brian uh, eno for joining me joining me on the show today and thank you all for listening and we'll be back same time same place next week goodbye